Have a seat if you'd like. If you want to stand, that'd be awkward, but go for it. We're all for it. I like awkward. My name's Brad. Happy to see you. Uh, if I don't know you, now, now we know each other. It's great. Um, so I was in my room the other day, and I was with my son Judah, a six-year-old. You see him running around dressed like Pikachu. That's the one. Uh, it's, Pokemon's not annoying at all. And so uh, we were, he was looking at our wedding picture, which is right above uh, my dresser. And Carrie has one above hers, which is a good thing. It's like, oh, yes, we're married. That's her. Uh, and so, and he looked at me, and he's, he, he just, he looks at me, and then he looks at the picture. And my son's a little, little smart aleck. There's other words for him that are not appropriate right now, but that's him. But, and, and he looks at me and goes, Daddy, who's that with Mama? <laughs> I went, uh, that's me. And he goes, that's not you. Uh, no, no, bud, it, it, really, it, it really is me. And he goes, no, this person has hair. Uh, and I'm like, yeah. I used to have hair until you came along. And, and then he goes, and this person doesn't have gray in their beard. And I said, well, bud, that was like almost 13 years ago. Uh, I, a lot has happened since then, and, and I'm not that far off. I mean, come on. Uh, I haven't changed that much. And he goes, if you say so. Well, I'm going to ask Mama. And I was like, oh, bud. Conversations with your six-year-old son, who's a bit narcissistic at this stage, are never encouraging. And I, uh, you should try it, see how it goes. But for him, and, and we all do this in some degree, we look at pictures of people from the past, this, these snapshots from, from yesteryear, and we're shocked on how different we look and more shocked at how different our friends look, Right? Like, you're never shocked, like, yeah, that's me, whatever, but look at you. You've changed so much. And we do this, and, and sometimes we look better, sometimes we look worse, uh, and, and then, but, but there's a change that goes on. It becomes pretty easy to put people in the box of what their pictures used to be, at that frozen frame in time where it's like, you were like this, and it's easier to leave them in that place because you know what to do with them, right? You can say, you're this way, and you'll always be this way. And in a way, we put them in a box. We say, you stay here in your own self-contained box. And for Judah, me, the way I am now, is not the way I was. His box was more updated, but for him, it was hard. Daddy didn't fit in the box that he had already constructed for me. And I don't fit in that suit anymore that I was in the picture, but that's, that's a different issue. But we've all changed. Boxes are good, right? How many of you have been to Costco and denied the box when they give it to you? No, you always take that box. It's going to fill your recycle bin. You're going to have no room, but you're going to take that box. They make things easier to hold. They make things easier to contain. It, it keeps things organized. It's a good idea to have some boxes around, especially when you have a lot of little trinkets. It's never a good idea to put people in a box, and it's an even worse idea to put Jesus in a box. Yet, that's what we do. All through history, and even the time of Jesus, he was always placed into a box. Everyone thought he was a revolutionary until one day they came and asked him, and they said, Jesus, what do we do about Rome? And he goes, pay your taxes. And the box of the revolutionary was blown up because revolutionaries don't pay taxes, right? 
Then he was just a, a carpenter boy from a carpenter family. They weren't even sure who his dad was. He was, might have been just a, 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 an illegitimate child is what they thought. And then one day he's sitting with the scholars and he's confusing them. And so the box that they had him in didn't fit anymore. Some said he was a wizard of miracles. And then when they asked him to do a trick, he goes, no, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to play to your crowd. And the box of you're just a genie and you do whatever you want gets thrown to the side. Some said that he was a good Jew until, until he goes and spends time with Gentiles. And then that gets thrown off. That doesn't work. So this box is no good. And then some say he was a rabbi, but then he was steered clear of the, the synagogues. In a world that held men in high esteem and not good and didn't hold women in any esteem, he says, you know what? We're going to have Mary, and she's going to follow me, and I'm going to have a whole bunch of women that follow me and help me in my ministry. In fact, I'm going to use a woman to plant a church called in Philippi. That's what we're going to do. And that box gets blown up. He was holy, but he hung out with sinners. He hung out with tax collectors. One of his nearest and dearest friends was named Matthew. That box gets blown away. He doesn't fit in a box. Yet everyone tried to put him in one. And even you and I try to put in him in one. Today, if you turn on the TV, the televangelist will say, you know, Jesus will give you whatever you want. And if it's riches and, and fame, it's just one prayer away and one small donation. And so they put Jesus in a make-me-rich-quick box. Politicians pull Jesus out and put him in a box all the time, whether they're conservative or liberal or progressive or green or whatever new color comes out next for the next political thing. Whatever box that Jesus can fit in that gets them the poll numbers, they'll use it. It's not sincere. It never is. Don't believe them. Athletes and artists like to put Jesus in a box. It's the good luck charm in order to get them the win or the award or thank him for the Grammy or whatever. Facebook arguments put Jesus in a box. A bunch of half-baked doctrines and one-liners that we all rehearse or we heard from a meme that's supposed to shut down any kind of argument, and then everyone comments back and says, gosh, you're right. Has that ever happened on Facebook? <laughs> but we put Jesus in that box, we put our arguments in a box, and, it, and we think it works. And whether we know it or not, we put Jesus in this box. And sometimes it's big, and sometimes it's small, and sometimes it, it, it's easier to handle, it's easier to control, because God comes in handy when you know what to expect. God comes in handy when you can control him and make him do whatever you want. If Jesus and God and everything about them can just stay in their box, life would be so much better, wouldn't it? The disciples thought this one night. The disciples had Jesus in a box, pretty good-looking box, too. They thought he was the revolutionary to come kick out Rome, and they thought he was going to do everything that they wanted, and they thought they were going to set free, and they were going to be rulers, and they had Jesus' box pegged. They, this is what was going to happen until one night, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, these are the closest, like the inner circle of the 12, and to the top of the mountain, just the three of them, and Jesus, so there was four, and what happened that night blew their box to shreds. Everything that they expected Jesus to be changed. And their boxes were blown up. Because what was about to take place on that mountain couldn't stay on the mountain. What was about to be shown from Jesus couldn't stay in their box. 
the experience that they were going to have with Jesus was intended to blow their box apart because what, re- what they returned to in the valleys below, they needed something different. They needed to adjust their boxes, and so do we. But in order for this to happen, the disciples had to do three, three actions, and so, and so do we. They needed to look at Jesus. They needed to listen to Jesus. They needed to learn from Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, we're still in Mark. This is Mark 9. Uh, and, and if you have a bookmarker, it's a great place for it to be. Uh, Mark 9, and how are we doing with the checklist? Okay, that's good. Uh, but they needed to look at Jesus. They needed to see him with new eyes. And so, in verse 2 of chapter 9, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led him up to the high mountain. And they were all alone. Now, there's some clues here. Remember, Mark loves symbolism. Uh, he likes to drop little hints there that, that his readers would pick up, and sometimes we gloss over that there's a couple signs that are happening for us that we can look at here. Six days later, six days is uh, something that happens every six days. On, uh, in Exodus, Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai, and for six days, it was quiet. After six days, God descended. Six days is how long creation took, and then the seventh day, God rests. Jesus was crucified on the, sixth, on, the, on the sixth day. Seventh day, he rested. The first day, he rose. Six days is a sign from Mark that, hey, something's about to happen. Another sign that Mark drops for us is the mountaintop. He took him to a mountain. Scripture places all the big events on top of mountains. Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. Then you see Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Elijah meets with the, or battles the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And then he ascends to heaven, doesn't die, ascends to heaven from Mount Horeb. Jesus redeems all humanity on a hill called Calvary. Things happen on mountains. In Revelations, you see Jesus coming back to the Mount of Olives. This is mountaintops are big events. And so now we have a mountaintop. And the mount that they go to, a lot of scholars say it's Mount Hermon. I don't know if we got the picture in, uh, probably not, but Mount Hermon is this huge mountain, 9,200 feet tall. It stands at the northern part of Israel. Think of it kind of like you can see Rainier from everywhere, right? Mount Hermon was the same way. And so Mount Hermon stood there, and it looked over the Sea of Galilee, visible for over 100 miles, a gigantic snowy peak, and it was this perfect place for Jesus to take Peter James and John for them to escape to. It was far away from the crowds. It was distant from the nagging questions and the controversies that they'd been dealing with. There, Jesus would have three close friends with him to pray. In Luke's gospel, in in, in 928, he shares that Jesus went went there often to pray because there was a lot that was going to happen. And when a lot happens, and Mark, if it's one of the themes you see in Mark, when something big's about to happen, Jesus retreats to pray. In a few weeks from this time, if we do the time thing, in Mark 9, a few weeks from this point, Jesus would be faced with the cross, the nails, the mocking, the betrayal, all of that which was about to happen, and he would need the strength to get through it. Not only did he need the strength, Jesus, his disciples would also be faced with a lot. Peter, James, and John needed to know how Jesus was operating and where he got his strength from. So something happens on this mountain. Let's continue. Mark 9, 2, the last part. There 
he was transfigured before them, which is a weird statement. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could ever bleach them. That word transfigured is the Greek word metamorpho. You want to say it? Okay, this side. You're good over here. Metamorpho. All right, we're all together. Good. Metamorpho, it means this. It means to change, but not just a normal change. It means a radical change. You move from one form to another. And here it's used in the passive sense, meaning that Jesus didn't go there and say, I'm going to change now. This happened to him. He was changed. And the, the, the tone of the verse means that God is doing something with Jesus in that moment. Mark liked to think in laundry terms, so he said he was dazzling white as if it was a bleach commercial or a Tide with Tide Pods commercial. Matthew looked at it differently. Matthew said this in Matthew 17 too. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Uh, the word transfigured is only used four times in the New Testament. It's only in those four Gospels. It means that Jesus was bright as the sun. Whatever it was that happened to him, light spilled out. A brilliant, explosive, shocking brightness that emanated out of every pore of his skin and every section of his robe. His skin was so light that his clothes changed color. It was as if Jesus, Matthew says, it was on fire and looking at him was like looking directly into the sun itself. But it wasn't the work of high-powered bleach like Mark. It wasn't the work of a nonsensical amount of LEDs. This was a ver- the very presical, present It was the very presence of God, the light and holiness that only God can bring. When you look at light and holiness, those are two words that are used to describe God all throughout the scripture. In 1 John 1, 5, it says that God is light and in him is no darkness. In the beginning, God created the earth and the only thing that was around was light and it came from his voice. Light is something that describes God. In in 1 Timothy 6, it says that he, your God, dwells in unapproachable light. The transfigured Christ is God in his purest form. It shows us who Jesus really was. It's the truest version of himself. He was wearing his, uh, before he wore swaddling clothes, this is what he looked like before before we celebrate Christmas. In the rapture, when Jesus comes back, this is the form he will take. And so he's giving them a little bit of a foretaste of this is what Jesus actually looks like. There's a theologian, Thomas Howard, and he describes Jesus here as not a a pale Galilean, but instead a towering, furious, fiery figure who cannot be managed or who cannot be put in a box. He can't be contained. And in the flash, Peter and James and John, they're blinded. And in the shadow, blinded, and, and they realize that the box that they have Jesus in is not big enough. They've never seen Jesus like this. Walk on water? Yeah, sure, we've seen him do that. Calm a storm? Absolutely. Multiply bread? Yep, we've seen him do that twice. Talk to the wind and banish demons? He probably did that before noon. Raise the dead? He's done that. But now to stand there like the human torch, this doesn't fit anymore. And this wasn't what was expected. But there's more that happened. In verse 4, And there appeared before him Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now, I 
usually find any excuse to talk about Moses. It's kind of just what I do. But we're just going to skip over. Moses was there, okay? We're not going to go into a lot of detail. Moses was the giver of the law. Elijah was the greatest of all prophets. He's the one who taught prophets. And, and they both step across, or they step out of eternity, and they, sit, they stand there with Jesus. Both of these men's deaths or vanishings from earth were a little suspect. People say that Moses died, but there's some rabbinical tradition that says perhaps he didn't. We don't know where he's buried. He went up on the mountain and, and was no more. Elijah was taken up by a, a chariot of fire. And so here he has Moses and Elijah standing with him. Now Moses and Elijah in the Jewish world, that's like Washington and Lincoln in ours. These are the two of the forefathers of their faith. You throw in Abraham and you have everybody now. Here are the, the main figures, the law, which they lived their lives, and the prophets, which told them what to expect in the life to come, are standing there with Jesus. And they stood there and they talked with him as if they were old friends, because they were. Luke 9, you've been probably wondering what they were talking about. Well, Luke, Luke tells us, he says this, they spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to the fulfillment of Jerusalem, his departure. The word for departure, anyone want to take a stab? Favorite book of the Bible? Exodus. Thank you, Dan, you pay attention. Exodus, that's what, that's what the word is in Greek. They were talking about the Exodus as if Jesus was going to Jerusalem in order to bring people out of their slavery, like Moses did and like Elijah foretold. They were looking, very much looking at the glory of God from just a couple feet away. Do you want to know how to destroy your box that you put Jesus in? Take a long look at what he does. Take a long look at what he said. Take a long look at what he's doing. It's bigger than the box that you have created for him. Your expectations of what Jesus can do are bigger than what you think. The disciples learned that that night. Peter, James, and John that night looked and saw what only Moses and Elisha had seen in their lifetimes. They saw the glory of God pass before them, and Moses and Elisha hid their faces. But Peter, James, and John stared, stared at it with eyes wide open. The same glory that Moses and Elijah saw on their mountaintops when they met Jesus both times are what Peter, James, and John are now seeing. Now, when you look at Moses and Elijah, when they saw Jesus, they were at this very point in their lives where things were going to get difficult, or things had been difficult. And the glory of God that shone about them, now they saw just a glimpse of it, the glory of God that Moses and Elijah saw propelled Moses and Elijah to go on with the work that was ahead of them. It fueled their ministry. It enabled them to continue. When you look at the glory of God and you throw away your box, it's going to give you the fuel and the energy and the, the inspiration, so to speak, to move on through your times, through your valleys. Remember, they're on a mountaintop and they're going to go back to the valley. What they do on the mountaintop is going to fuel them fuel them at the low points. What they do at the high points is going to give them strength when life gets tough. This is what Moses and Elijah saw, and this is what Peter, James, and John needed to see. The glory gave them courage to continue on, and it was being displayed right in front of them. How many of you have ever had one of these mountaintop experiences? I have. 
uh, it's an experience or a feeling, or it's a, it comes in a thought, a word, or prayer, where you walk away and you know, like, oh my goodness, God was in this place. I'm forever changed. I saw a view of God that I've never experienced before. And it changes the way you continue. I was at summer camp in high school. We were at a place called Hume Lake. And there was this worship time. And as they worshiped, the, the band there uh, worshiped for like 45 minutes. And I remember being a senior going, this is a long time. But this is really good. And something special was happening that night. And as, it, as, as they ended their set, we're all out by the fire. And it's that night of summer camp. If you've ever been to a Christian summer camp, it's the fire night. And we were expecting... Uh, uh, the, the speaker's name was Darren to come up and give like a sermon and Darren threw away his sermon that night and went, uh, this very God that you worshipped can be known right now. It was powerful. He didn't need to say a word. And we all knew in that time we were being f- confronted with God's glory. One night, Carrie and I were being prayed for. It was a stranger praying for us, but he knew every single situation that came from the Spirit through him, and he prayed for us about things that only her and I had talked about. We walked away that night going, we have just been in the middle of God's glory. He sees us. He has seen us. We see him. I was doing my morning prayer, sitting in the chair downstairs in our house, and there was this something different about that day. There was a holy heaviness to the room. Holy also means weighty. There was a weightiness to this room. Something was going on in that place, and it wasn't just me. I didn't want to leave that place. This is the glory of God. These are the mountaintop experiences. You don't have to go to a mountain to get a mountaintop experience. You can be in your living room, you can be in your car, you can be in the seat that you're in. Have you ever had one? You want to freeze those moments in time. You want to put them in a box, whether it's big or, or small, or whether it has a smiley face on it or not. You want to put those moments in the box and you want to save those times forever. You want to freeze frame, you want to capture it, and you say, this is how God speaks. This is the only way God can speak, and this is only what God does. And this is what Peter wanted to do. Peter thought, hey, that's a great idea. Let's freeze frame this. Let's stop it right here. Let's not move. And so he had this wonderful idea. The problem was Peter started talking before he started thinking, which is what Peter does. And we like to pick on Peter for this, but don't too much because you're just like Peter. And so am I. Peter has this great idea. Hey, this, 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 we need, we need to freeze this. And what happens when you talk too much is you don't listen enough. And Peter was looking, and then he starts talking, and what he needed to do was listen. Once he looked, he needed to hear it. And Peter says this in verse 5, Rabbi, this is good. This is good for us to be here. It was. Let us put up three shelters. The word for shelters there is is another sign for us. In the Hebrew tradition, there's this festival called the Festival of Booths, or Sukkot. And what it did was commemorate the time when Moses would take them through the, the 40 years of wilderness, and they lived in shelters. And they would build tents and shelters and shacks in their front yard, and they would live in those for 40 days, which just seems weird because you get a nice, comfortable bed inside, yet you're going to sleep in your yard. Great. That sounds wonderful. It sounds like camping, which is another subject. But they decide we're going to, sorry, Bethany Wilderness is here and camping is (laughs) great. For some. 
um, but we're, but we're going to live in our front yard. And so he said, let's build three shelters. Let's commemorate this. The exodus is happening. Yes, you're going to redeem us. Uh, and then he says, one for you, of course, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Mark notes this. He didn't know what to say because they were so frightened. It's not a bad idea what Peter had. It might be great, and it probably was a harmless one. We want to memorialize this moment. Peter wanted to say, let's build a plaque that we always remember what this happened. It's a good idea. Peter wants a building committee, which is always a bad idea. Uh, and you can kind of see Peter scrambling around saying, we can get this stick and we can move this together. And it looks like one of those shelters that we see on the beach. He's going to get right to work on this. Peter thought it was a good idea. It was a terrible idea. Look at Matthew 17, or if you don't, just mark Matthew 17. When, uh, uh, when Peter, Matthew tells this story, and he, and he says when Peter starts doing this, God interrupts him mid-sentence. It's like, Peter, I'm not even going to let you finish. This is a terrible idea. God interrupts him. It was so off base that he cuts him off before he can finish his thought. And then Mark points out that Peter was trying to put God in this whole situation in this little box because he was probably likely afraid to move on from this moment. Fear is oftentimes what makes us construct boxes around our God and our Savior. In Mark's gospel, there are ten times when Mark mentions someone acting in fear. The contrast that Mark gets at is that being trapped in fear means that you are not acting in faith. Acting in fear means that you're stuck. You're not moving forward. For Peter, James, and John that day, and for us, God wanted more than just a mountaintop experiences. Mountaintop experiences are great, but the point of the mountaintop is to equip you for what's to come and what's below. They act, the mountaintops act as a formation tool for our faith. But if your fear is bigger than your faith, your formation will constantly fail our fears blind us to the movements of God. They deafen us. They deafen us to the promises of his word and they numb us to the works of his spirit. Placing Jesus in a box is an act of fear and Jesus is like, no, fear is not supposed to happen here. We don't move in fear. Peter, stop freaking out. In this case, for Peter, his fear was becoming the barrier to his formation. He wanted to stay but there was more work to be done. There was more Jesus to be seen. There was more to come. In verse 7, a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. This is the very words that we see in the very beginning of Mark and in the other Gospels when Jesus is baptized. It's like a repetitive thing. God wants us to be sure of something. Now, a cloud appearing is another sign that we see whenever God shows up in the Old Testament with Exodus and Moses. We see God descending on Sinai in a cloud with Elijah. It came from a cloud, and God spoke from the cloud. And the same happens here. God spoke from the cloud. He says, this is my son whom I love. The word love is the word apagados or agapatos, agape with the word tos on the end of it. Uh, its range and meaning means this, priceless and unique. There is none other like Christ. Not Moses, not Elijah, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not whoever you want to think is your guidance or the one who can give you uh, clarity on where to go, not Miss Cleo, nothing. There is no one like Jesus. He is my only son. No one in heaven not on, or on earth. 
Uh, Jesus, the Father declared, is the Son, not the best of all sons. He's the beloved Son, the unique and only priceless Son. John gets at this in, in John 3, the only begotten Son. Some other religions will say that Jesus was one of many sons. It's not what God says here. Matthew heard this voice, and, and, and they, they, Matthew says they heard this voice, and they fell to the ground, and they were very afraid. One, one, uh, Mark mentions fear. Matthew mentions fear. There's two types of fear. Peter, the, the fear that makes him want to freeze time is the word ekphobos. Come on. I'm, I'm looking at you people. Ekphobos. Okay, good. Ekphobos means this, strike with terror. Okay, the shock and awe. This is the, I don't want to move. I'm hiding my face. The other type of fear is what Matthew says in his version of it. He says the word phobeo. Come on. Phobeo, ekphobos, ekphobeo. The same fear is there. It's a different prefix to it. What this means, what Matthew says, is it's a fear of amazement. Oh my, I can't believe what is happening before my eyes. Have you ever had that? You stand before a beautiful sight. Maybe it's a waterfall. Maybe it's the ocean. Maybe it's the birth of a child and you just can't imagine anything more amazing than this moment. This is what Matthew says. They fell with, with this kind of fear, amazement of what was unfolding before them, and they couldn't believe what was happening. In this fear, God squashes all terror. In this fear, there's no running and hiding. It replaces your fear from uh, being hurt or your fear that makes you want to fight or flight with a holy reverence of what was happening before them. They were gripped with a deep, healthy, stabilizing reference of the one and only God. The God who flung the stars in the place. The God who carved the canyons with his finger. The God who said, water, you go there and you don't search, you don't go anymore. That's your boundary. The God who made the earth. The God that the Psalms talk about over and over again. This was the God that they were confronted with and they were amazed. This is the God who whisked Elijah from the mountain and then put him on the mountain that night. This is the God who at the Red Sea said, no, Pharaoh's army, you're not going to cross. You're going to go for a swim. This is that same God. And they knew deep in their souls that this God was once everywhere and present at the same time in them. And when God is fully revealed to us and we get it, we then can experience this same conversation that they had. We can move from the fear of terror to the fear of reverence, from the neurotic fear of fumbling around like Peter, trying to build something, trying to construct a box where we can stay right there, that you're going to lose this moment, to a fear of this is the very face and presence of God, and he's with us. How long has it been since you felt that kind of amazement? One author writes this, when, when Christ is great, when we have this kind of amazement, when we, when we move in ekphobos, when Christ is great, our other fears are not. Our awe of Jesus expands, uh, expands us and it diminishes our fear. And as we see and realize the bigness of our God, the bigger your God, the bigger the courage you have. A puny, fireless view of Jesus has no power over cancer, 
a puny, weak view of Jesus has no justice over corruption, global unrest, inflation, market crashes, war, and whatever will happen tomorrow. A puny, small Jesus that fits in our box might look good on our shelf and in our garage, but it'll do nothing for our fears. And a God that stays on the mountaintops does nothing when you need to walk in the valleys. This is what he's trying to show them. The mountaintop moments when God becomes a blaze to us, guide us through the valleys of darkness, despair, and fear. And this is exactly why Jesus took the disciples to the mountain that night. He wanted them to learn what would sustain them in the valleys below. He knew what was coming for Peter, that he would too be crucified on his way to Rome. He knew that John would be beaten and exiled and eventually killed. He knew that James would be thrown off the top of the temple and beaten to death. He knew what was coming for them, and he knew the path before them, and he knew that the small box that they constructed for them was too small to sustain them for what was to come. And then, just as quickly as it happened, it was over. In verse 8, suddenly they looked around. They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead, which was probably pretty easy because how do you describe this? You're not going to believe what happened, and they probably wouldn't. But he said, once the Son of Man is resurrected from the dead, which is something that probably blew their mind because their thought of resurrection is different than what we thought of resurrection. They, they had a whole different theology constructed by it, and they're like, resurrected? Okay. Is this the end of times? And it wasn't. It was different than what Jesus was talking about what was to come in a few weeks. But what happens on the mountaintop, what, what Jesus was getting at, what happens up there can't stay on the mountaintop. It has to come back down. And when things get hard, you're going to have to live by what you've seen here. I don't think Peter, James, and John uh, came down from the mountain in the same way that they went up from the mountain. My hunch is that they came back a bit awestruck, gobsmacked, maybe a little sunburned, uh, and they came back smiling with the spring in their step because this Jesus that they were with was the Messiah. And if he's walking next to them, is anyone around them going to hurt them? No. I also think this, that there are plenty of Mount Hermans in our lives, and they surround us today. And they're ablaze with invitations to experience the power and presence of God. And perhaps we need to stop putting Jesus in the box that we've created for him. And we need that, that we hope can contain him and allow him to transform us. We too need to look, listen, and then we need to learn from this situation that Jesus doesn't fit in our box. We need a bigger box. Perhaps your box needs adjusting, and by adjusting, you've placed Jesus in something that needs to be destroyed. You've told God that, oh, you know, God, you can't work in this situation. It'll never change. My family's the way my family is. That's never going to get any better. My life is the way my life is, and it's never going to get any better. My addiction will always be my addiction. It's never going to go away. I'm just going to have to find a way to deal with it, and God you're going to have to find a, deal with, a way to deal with it too. And so we make this box and say, work inside this. And God goes, no. Your marriage might be on the rocks. Relationships might be on the rocks. And you're tempted just to walk away and you go, you know what, God? It's broken. I'm moving on. And God goes, yeah, but I can fix that. 
My family's sick. God says, I can fix that. We think that we have depression, anxiety, fear, and we can't move through it, that God won't be able to, be able to use it. And God goes, yeah, your box is too small. I can use those. I can fix those. But you're going to have to look at me. You're going to have a fre- need to have a fresh experience with me in order for me to transform you. The idea that God can't is a mindset we pick up as we walk in the valleys. When you walk in the valleys, you can't see the mountaintops. You can't see what's up there. Uh, and, and to cure that, we need to spend some time with on the mountain to get our eyes to adjust to what God can actually do. We need to give up, get above the clouds of the mundane, above the noise and the confusion, beyond the traffic and the depression and the fear. The mountaintop experiences are where we find Jesus. And with fresh eyes, we realize that the box we've created for him is far too small, making the God you worship even smaller. Peter, James, and John that day got a proper view of the bigness of God. And the only way to get a proper-sized view of God is to experience God for who he is. Once you realize and see the glory of God, no box can contain it. Time and experience with Jesus will produce a faith that no box can contain. You want a bigger box that you can put Jesus in? You want to get rid of your box? Spend some time with him. If you're just spending time with Jesus in this room between the hours of 9.30 and probably 10.45 when we get done, your box is way too small. If you have nothing in the midweek that fuels your relationship with Jesus, if you're not in the scriptures, if you're not praying, your box is too small. If gathering with other believers, either here on a Sunday morning or with your small group in the midweek, if, if, gather, if, if gathering them with them becomes something you just do when you don't have a better offer, guess what? Your box is too small. You want to experience God for who He is? Spend some quality time with Him for who He is. You become what you worship. You see what you want to see. And if you want a bigger box for God to take you through the valleys of despair that we're all going through, you're going to have to sacrifice some things in order to see him clearly. And when you see him clearly, your eyes will be opened to the fact that God is with you in all those places. And then once you see Jesus and you experience him for who he is, when the spirit comes into your life, transforms you, it creates a thirst that will never ever be quenched. And when the tough times come, because they will, we just spent some time in Job, they will come. And if you aren't in one now, get ready, one's coming. And if you just came out of one, take a breath, because there's another one on the way. When those times come, you'll be able to look back at that time of the transformation, of the transfiguration, go, remember when Jesus changed for me? That is going to sustain me through the darkest of valleys. The box doesn't work anymore good. Change your box. Get a bigger one. And then get a bigger one. And then get one that nothing can, that you can't even hold because God is that much bigger. Judah's view that day of me was just as I am. He didn't know that I had a whole life before him. He was just freeze-framed on how I am now, and he can't imagine me anywhere else. Now he looks at that picture and goes, that's dad. He's different than I expected him to be. 
I pray the same for you, that you learn to see God in a bigger way than you can ever imagine. And that fear that you have is transformed to courage. My brother said this, and I can steal it from my brother because it's my brother. He says that, and I, I don't know if he's made it up, but he probably got it from somewhere, but he didn't remember. But he said, in Mark, we get a view of a fearless Jesus so we can have a less fear in our life. When Jesus becomes fearless, we fear less. When our boxes are destroyed, we walk through the valleys with courage, with our head high, because we know that our God is with us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are in the business of destroying boxes, not recycling them to make them into something else. You take them out and you destroy them and you rip them to shreds. And so, Lord, today, I pray that you would shred the boxes of our hearts. That the bright light of your transfiguration would give us bright lights in our dark valleys. And that we would see you for who you really are. Present with us. Giving us the courage and the view in order to propel us to the next thing. And so, Lord, today, uh, may your spirit work in our hearts in these next moments and identify the places in which we have boxed you in and said, you can't work in this. And God, may you remind us, oh yeah, watch this. So God, may you give us one of these experiences. May you speak to us in ways that we've never expected. May the reality of your love, the reality of your presence, the comfort of your spirit flood this place this morning. May it fuel us to hunger for more. We thank you that you're in the business of destroying boxes. May we see you with fresh eyes. 